Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. For the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord, the Lord Almighty has left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense, your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, the matter, says the Lord. Though your sin, your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She was once full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares, Ah, 
I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all of your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her uh, penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will live like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will, come, will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no, with no one to quench the fire. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Ju- Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord of the Lord's temple will be established as, as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go out to the, uh, go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, your word is a comfort to the challenged and a challenge to the comfortable. And once more, we have one of those passages that does both of those things. Lord, may your word do in our hearts what each one of us needs. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems to me that human beings have an appetite for transformation stories. Uh, We love the stories where there's change, where things are are better at the end than they were at the beginning. Uh, So we love the stories of of transforming a a renovator's dream into a beautiful new home, or a home cook into a master chef, uh, or uh, transforming a a lonely individual into a, a loving couple. These are the kinds of things that Australians... They love to watch the, love, the kinds of stories that they love to hear about. And really, it doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you are, whether you're like me and love the, the thinking-free Marvel superhero movie or whether you're kind of more literarily inclined, we, we just we love these kinds of stories of, of transformation. But really, actually, transformation, it, it's a powerful idea, but it's also an important one. Our appetite to be entertained by these stories of transformation is, or at least should be, only exceeded by our hunger for the stories of real transformation that are so needed in in our world today. Uh, The transformation of injustice into justice, the transformation of violence into peace, the transformation of evil into good, the transformation of suffering into joy. We can see the need for transformation in our world today. It's not just an idea to be entertained by. It's something that we long for. It's something that we need. We can see the need for it even in our own church. And knowing what is happening in the lives of those who are sick and suffering and in pain. 
Transformation. It's entertaining, but it's also a very important idea and something that we long for. Now, today we're starting a series in the book of Isaiah. Between now and Christmas, we're going to look at the first part of Isaiah, Isaiah 1 to 39, an amazing part of God's Word, a rich and, and powerful and majestic part of God's Word. But Isaiah is a transformation story at its heart. It's the story of the transformation of a city, uh, the city of Jerusalem that was mentioned in 1 verse 1. Her transformation from being a a city full of sin and oppression and violence and rebellion against God into becoming a city of righteousness once again. But the transformation of this city is significant in the way that just any other city is not. Because like dropping a, a rock in a pond, the ripple of Jerusalem's transformation will go out into all the world. It will lead to not just the transformation of of this one city, but it will actually lead to the transformation of the whole nation of God's people. And not just God's people, it will lead to the transformation of all people. And not just all people, it will lead finally to the transformation of the world itself. God's plans to transform our world, Isaiah tells us, begins with changing just one city. Now, what we read today introduces us to the whole book of Isaiah and this theme of transformation. And so, like all transformation stories, it has three parts to it. The first part is the way things are, in chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. The second part is the way things will be, that's chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And then lastly, of course, there is the way we will get there, chapter 1, 18 to, to 31. And these are three things, the way things are, the way things will be, and the way we will get there. These three headings, they're not just an introduction to what we're going to talk about tonight. Actually, they're really helpful guideposts for how we read the whole book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a really big book, 66 chapters. It's a long book. And if you're reading along with us, uh, when you get lost in Isaiah, and you will get lost in Isaiah, uh, just remember this. It's a story of transformation. And so whatever passage in Isaiah you are reading, it's either about the way things are for Israel now or the way they will be or the way that we will get there. But let's start our story today, shall we? Let's start where we are in chapter 1. Because the vision of Isaiah couldn't begin any more dramatically. God speaks directly to Israel in verse 2 and expresses his very deep displeasure at the way that they have rebelled against him. He even calls heaven and earth as witnesses But God speaks with the broken heart of a loving father. Verse 2. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 3 says that Israel is worse than the ox or donkey who do at least know their master's voice. Verse 4. Woe to the sinful nation of people whose guilt is great. A brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, they have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. They are his children, God affirms, but they are his sinful children. Guilty, evil, corrupt, rebellious. God piles up the words to describe their condition. They have forsaken their faithful God. They have spurned their loving Father. 
and they have turned their backs on their merciful king. And yet despite his broken heart, God has not abandoned his people. Here God is still speaking to them and even still disciplining them for their own good. You can even hear, I think, the longing in God's voice in verses 5 to 6. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why should you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. God doesn't dis out discipline like a, an uncaring policeman or a stern school principal might. God disciplines as a loving parent. A, a parent who, well, all parents find it hard when their children are, are sick or in distress or in pain or, or upset. It's never easy to see your children cry. And it's never easy to be the reason why your children are crying. But careful, loving discipline is what every good parent does. And it grieves God deeply to see Israel's distress, even if he knows that it's an essential part of them maturing. And yet, despite repeated discipline, Israel has repeated their rebellion. And in fact, things are so bad in, in verse 9 that God stops speaking and actually Isaiah speaks on behalf of Israel and he says... Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. It reminds us that for all of God's anger and all of his discipline, all of his disappointment, God has not wiped Israel out. He has left some remnant, some survivors. But verse 9 is a horrible picture for Israel. God's promise to Israel ever since the time of Abraham was, be, was that they would be a great nation, that they would be more numerous than the sand and the seashore or the stars in the sky. And yet here they are reduced to just a few bedraggled survivors. And yet at the very same time, it's also a picture of God's incredible mercy. Because there are some left. And that's testimony to God's commitment to his promises it's testimony to the relentless love that he has as a father for his children. So what's the problem then? Why is it that God is so upset with his people? Well, perhaps they haven't been religious enough. You know, perhaps they haven't kind of done all the sorts of things that, that God had asked them to do. Only verse 10 and onwards makes it very clear that that is not the case. It makes it very clear that actually... It's the practice of their religion that is chief amongst God's complaint against them. Because considering their rebellious ways, their religious practices represent a tragic hypocrisy. It seems that again, transformation is the issue. Only this time it's the fact that they have been untransformed by their religion. They have been unchanged by the God who rescued them. In fact, in verse 10, God likens them to the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah, whom God obliterated in his wrath. Which is ironic because in verse 9, Isaiah had just said that if God had not spared them, then they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. But now here in verse 10, God makes it clear that that is exactly actually what they deserve. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. 
The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate them with all my being. They have become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. The people that God has already described as sinful, guilty, evil, corrupt, rebellious, have nevertheless continued to offer their sacrifices. They've continued to celebrate the festivals and remember the Sabbath. And they've continued to pray. But at the end of the day, it was all just a performance. Their religious activity, an empty shell. Their religious behavior might be impressive to one another, but it does not impress God. And so God makes it clear their sacrifices bring him no pleasure. Their trips to the temple are, are, are an, uh, trespassing in his place. Their assemblies are a burden to him. And perhaps most terrifying of all, when they pray, God shuts his eyes and covers his ears. He is not listening. God hates. God is weary of Israel's religion. Because in verses 16 and 17, their religious life is accompanied by lives of violence and injustice and oppression. They do not practice what they preach. They are absolute and utter hypocrites. Again, it is the practice of a people unchanged by their religion and therefore untransformed by the God they profess to worship. They've learnt their ceremonies. They know what to do. But they have not learnt to listen to God. And they have not learnt to obey Him. And so God urges them to repent and to relearn. Stop doing wrong. Seek justice. Defend the fatherless and the widows. Defend those who are most vulnerable. Be changed. Be transformed. Listen. Love what I love. Be committed to what I am committed to. Because as it is, their religion is worse than worthless. Now this complaint of God against the hypocritical religion of Israel is so important that the issue actually frames the whole book of Isaiah. If you go all the way over to Isaiah 66, it's well worth a read. God says much the same thing. Those who offer sacrifices, it means nothing to him. But the one that God esteems is the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at God's word. But this chapter alerts us to a disturbing possibility. The disturbing possibility of being impressive in the eyes of other Christians and yet at the same time as being hated by God for our unchanged hearts. That was Israel's situation. They were religious and they were rebellious at the same time. 
And I think it's possible for people today to be religious and rebellious at the same time. To look religious, to look like they are all the goods, to say all the right things and kind of do all the right things on the outside. But because they are rebellious, God is angry with them. And they are like Israel was, hypocrites. Their religion leaving them untransformed in heart or relationships. It is possible to come to church, to listen to the sermons, to join in with the prayers, even get involved and and serve, but for the Lord's verdict to be that he is sick of our hypocritical lives and unchanged hearts. Now, of course, that might seem like a shocking thing to say because it is a shocking thing to say. But we do know how to impress each other, don't we? Uh, We do know how, at least for a few hours on a Sunday, how to do the right things and say the right things and, and be the right sort of person, to know how to fit in and perform like a Christian. And yet it's also possible that for some of us, performance is all that it is. Going through the motions, but our hearts are far from God. It's easy to fall into the trap of looking the goods for each other when we're, we're with other Christians, but to actually live quite differently when we're away from each other. A growing gap between what we profess and the way that we live. And if that is happening to some of us, then Isaiah 1 ought to warn us as it warned Israel. God is not fooled and he will not be mocked. God sees everything. Now we might impress each other, we might even be able to hide our sins from each other, but God sees our untransformed hearts. There is no hiding things from him. God hates. God is wearied. By false piety. Now, of course, none of us perfectly live what we profess to believe, and nor do we claim to either. We freely and we publicly confess our sins, come before God and each other, and remind each other that each one of us are sinners and always in need of the forgiveness that only Jesus brings. And there is a little bit of the hypocrite in all of us. And that's okay. Sometimes our hypocrisy is us just trying to do better, just trying to change. Uh, That struggle is what the Christian life is like for every sincere Christian believer. Uh, To make our our confession and our, our conduct line up more and more each and every day. And if that is our situation, then we ought to hear Isaiah 1 as an encouragement. An encouragement to keep going, an encouragement to, to work hard, an encouragement to, to seek God and to listen to him as he works in us and to be humble about it, both with God and with each other. But there may be some here for whom this is a much bigger issue, like it was for the Israelites. There may be some here for whom hypocrisy has become a habit. And in which case, these words are not just a gentle reminder, but they are the sternest of rebukes. But no matter which it is, we must remember how important it is to God that we live 
consistent lives. How important it is to God that His Word transforms us, both inside and out. That what we hear from God changes us. I can't help but be reminded of other words, words from James chapter 1. Familiar words to many of us, I'm sure. Where James says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world's. God wants us to hear his voice and he wants us to be transformed by it inside and out. But let's come back to Isaiah. Chapter 1 verses 1 to 17 describe the terrible state that God's people are in, how things are now. But come with me to chapter 2. Just a a brief glimpse in chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 of the way God says things will be, uh, the end point of this transformation story. And you couldn't get a, a bigger contrast. Uh, there is an echo here. 2 verse 1 sounds very similar to 1 verse 1. Again, Isaiah sees a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. We're still talking about Jerusalem here. But God's plans might begin with Jerusalem, but God's plans end with Zion, uh, the mountain of the Lord's temple in 2 verse 2. And the trick is to understand that actually we're still talking about the same place. Zion is just another name for Jerusalem. Zion, Mount Zion, is is the hill upon which Jerusalem is built. And more particularly, it's the hill upon which God's temple is built. But when Isaiah speaks of Zion, he's not talking about the city as she is, but instead about the city as she will be, as God will make her to be. Uh, Jerusalem was weighed down with sin and about to be brought low by God. But Zion, in 2 verse 2, will be the highest of mountains. We lift it up by God. Jerusalem was likened to Sodom and Gomorrah, the kind of city from which angels would urge you to flee. But Zion is a place where people will flock to, where all nations will come up so that they might worship God. Jerusalem was plagued by hypocritical worship with people who were paying no heed to God's word. But Zion, in Zion, in verse 3, many people will gather. Why? So that they might be taught, so that they might receive God's word. Zion is a place where people will delight in God's word and find joy in being transformed by him. Jerusalem was at war, being plundered by many nations, but Zion will be the end of war. And be the bringer of peace to all the earth in verse 4. For when the nations come to Zion, when the nations listen to God's word, peace follows. And so this vision, it might begin with, with Jerusalem, but it ends with a new Jerusalem. It ends with Zion, a restored Zion, a new city for God, inhabited by a new people of God, to which all the nations come so that they might worship God. A city and an even a world that has been transformed. But how do we get there? 
How do we get there from the, the bleak picture of a rebellious people with an empty religion to the, to the mountain of the Lord as it's described for us? How do we get from Jerusalem to Zion? And the answer is twofold. The answer is reconciliation and refinement. Uh, reconciliation, it, it starts in, in verse 18. It starts where God invites Israel to sit down for a reasonable conversation. Verse 18, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, God offers them here, he offers them cleansing from their sin. God says that he can take them from the red of skin, sin uh, to, to be pure white like the snow or like the, the wool of a lamb. He can transform them. He doesn't tell them how he can do this. At this point, I think they can only marvel in wonder at the idea of a, a God who can do such a thing. How do you make scarlet white? How do you forgive someone their sins and cleanse them? But not only does God say that he is able to do this, he says, even after everything that has happened, even after the way you have treated me, I'm willing to do this for you. Even after all of his weariness at their religious hypocrisy, God is able and willing to extend this offer to them if they are but willing to repent and obey him once again. And when they do so in verse 19, then once again he will bless them. Once again he will, he will show them his favour. If, but if they continue in their rebellion, then God will continue in his stern discipline in verse 20. But even then, this time, God says, it will be different. This time, the discipline I bring, it won't be like the discipline that I brought you earlier in chapter 1, where even repeated discipline just led to repeated rebellion. This time, God's vision is for a purified people beyond the punishment. God's purpose is that his people might be refined. So verse 25, God says this to me. He says, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross. And remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. You see, the result of Israel's refinement is that Israel will be once again called the faithful city. Once again, they'll be marked by, by righteousness. And why will Israel be, be known for these things again? Because that's what Israel's God is known for. So verse 27, Zion, the new city, will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will both be broken, for those who forsake the Lord will perish. God says, yes, I'm, I'm offering you forgiveness, I'm offering you cleansing, I'm offering you purification, I'm offering you transformation. But the path to refinement is a messy one path for transformation is not easy. The rebellion must be purged from among them if they are to be purified. Purification will not come about through just ignoring Israel's sins. There must still be justice. So how can all this be? How can judgment save? How can God venting his wrath on his foes bring purification for his people 
How can this bring about the kind of transformation that's pictured in, in these verses? How will it actually be different this time? You know, how can God make the red scarlet sin become as white as snow? Well, that's the riddle that's going to occupy much of the book of Isaiah. That's a mystery that we'll actually come back to again and again and again as Israel tries to understand how it is that God will reconcile with them and refine them, how he will transform them to be the people that he wants them to be. But of course, we read these verses very differently from the way the Israelites read them. To Israel, these things might have been a mystery. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. But to us, these verses are not a riddle. These verses are sweet music. Music that is the answer to all our hopes, to all of our deepest needs. We know how God can make scarlet white. We know how God can forgive sins. We know how God can refine and transform the sinner's heart. Because it's happened to us. Because we have been forgiven. Because we have been cleansed. Because we have been transformed and are being transformed. And so we are humble and we are glad and so we rejoice For Israel, verse 18, it was a future proposition. It was an invitation to forgiveness if they did but repent. But for us, we have already been forgiven. For we have already come to Jesus. Jesus in whom the worst of sinners can be cleaned. Jesus who holds the cure for the most entrenched of hypocrites. Jesus who transforms even the hardest of hearts. Jesus who solves the riddle of the scarlet being made as white as snow. In Revelation 7, John, the Apostle John, sees a a great multitude of people gathered before the throne of God and he asks the angel, who are these people? And the angel says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What does it take to make scarlet white as snow? It takes blood. It takes the blood of the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The blood of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The blood that he shed on the cross for us and for our salvation. To Israel, these things were a riddle, a mystery, a thing that they looked forward to. To us, these things are no riddle. They are instead a reminder. To us, Isaiah is a reminder, a proclamation of the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ of where forgiveness and reconciliation and refinement is found, where transformation for not just ourselves but even our whole world is found. We look back at Isaiah 
And Isaiah reminds us of the humble joy of being transformed by our God, of being purified by our God, of being forgiven by our God. Remembering what God has done for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Isaiah is, amongst everything else, it's a reminder to us of what God is like. A father who loves his sinful children, who welcomes us and forgives us and and brings us home, even if hypocrisy has become a habit. A God who is patient with us, who will never let sin separate us from his love. A father that we can trust to do good for us now and forever because he has already been good to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Lord said, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. But he also said, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Let's pray. Loving Father, we pray that we would not ignore these words of yours tonight. Where our hearts are unchanged and untransformed by you, Lord, we pray that we might repent, that we might change, that we might seek you again with all genuineness of heart. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us again. That, Father, we're encouraged to do this by the cleansing and forgiveness that you have already bought for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we are spurred on because you are to us what you have always been, a father who loves his children. Lord, we trust you. Lord, we depend on you. Lord, we need you in every way. Help us to remember what a loving father you are to us. And remind us constantly of your love in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.